Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Gunzel Cast. My name is Ray Carr. Jeremy Demery. Steve Ubaney. Carmen Angelo. And it's September 26th, and we have a unique program today. We're not just going to talk about the Browns. We're not going to talk about alcoholism, even though that's a very important topic. <laughs> but we may get back to that. And you know what? I hate to digress, but this is brought to you by Yingling's Traditional Lager. And it's America's oldest brew. Yes. I thought uh, Black that's, Label was. Uh, no. That's not actually true, but I do like that we have a running joke now. Oh, that's After not like, true? Right. No, it's so not true at all. So we're doing free advertising? Yeah. <laughs> okay, they're not going to get running. It's a running gag we have already, well, two podcasts into this. <laughs> well, literally, it happened about 10 minutes in last week. So, yeah. yeah. But go out and get your Yingling traditional lager, America's oldest brew. Yes. When you're thirsty, think of nothing else. And it was an anchor, or not anchor, man. It was semi-pro. Remember when the kid made the half-court shot? I never saw semi-pro. Anybody see that besides me? Nope. All right, well, I, I do remember that movie. I don't remember what you're referring to. Was it pre-1993? No, it was... It was uh, a Will Ferrell movie it was 2006. about basketball, right? Yeah, it was a semi-pro team called the Flint Tropics. Oh, yeah, the yeah. Flint Tropics. Yes, right. I'm familiar with that. So he's running all these crazy promotions, and he goes, he got, got this drunk guy that's uh, hopped up on goofballs and grass, and he goes, he makes the half-court shot, he wins like $10,000. And, and uh, the referee goes, um, you know... He goes, he was worried that he, he didn't want him to make it. He goes, don't worry, Jackie. The, the ref says, uh, Bush will pay for it. Bush Bavarian beer. But he, oh, goes, yeah. he goes, I don't know. I just made that up like you did. And the guy makes the shot. <laughs> so he gives him this big check. And he goes, go to the bank and go to the big check department to cash. <laughs> yeah. So you got to see the movie. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's a really good one. It's underrated, really. Oh, it's very underrated. It's very funny. Andy Richter's in there. Andy Richter, a talentless ass clown. No, That's that funny can... coming from you. What have you done? <laughs> I, what network television have you been on, Mr. Tough Guy over there? <laughs> Actually, <laughs> You're uh, going to hit him. Let me move. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I made a, a couple adult films, but shy of that, He's, really no other television. I, I, I got so defensive. It, you'd think he was my father. You yeah. know? No, Carmen, you were you the guy. You don't talk that... about my dad like that. <laughs> no, I like Andy Rick. I used to watch Conan all the time. <laughs> remember, in the year 2000, you were probably too young to remember no, that. No, I remember that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I was a big Conan fan. I love Same. Andy Richter. I'm just playing. It's showbiz. I'm an idiot. <laughs> Carmen, you were you played the role of Brick Stoneman in the in the porn fic, uh, the porn uh, flick. No, the actually, door. no. Um, uh, my name, one of my stage names was uh, uh, Rod Bone Steel. Yeah, and it was great. I mean, my my metam the metamorphosis to my career. I I started out actually. I was a field tester for Trojan, and then one thing led to another, and you know. A star was born. That's what happened. You, you, you broke through. Yeah. <laughs> you broke well, through. no, I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't have that much game. but Yeah, but you slipped one past the goaltender a few times. <laughs> That's why Trojan's such a terrible name for a condom company. You hey, look, it. guys, who the am Trojan I? Trojan horse? Yes. A right. little guys jumped into a big guy. They penetrated enemy lines, and they all got out and attacked. Exactly. Isn't this so what that's you're why trying to prevent? Listen, I, I talk a good game. I, you know, my idea of safe sex is putting a condom on each finger. You know, I, I didn't have a certain zest for... What's that? No, that means we move on. Oh! <laughs> hey, our, our special guest today, he's a man from New York, and he's traveled all the way here for the Gunzel cast because he heard this Gunzel cast or this podcast is number one in America or close to it. Yeah. Author Steve Ubaney, in all seriousness, one of the finest um, investigative journalists in the country. His new book, Who Murdered Diana? Steve, welcome. It's great to be on the show. Thanks, Ray. And I know that you're um, 
in between what? I just saw Diane out uh, at Caesars about uh, three years ago. I didn't know someone murdered her. Yeah, but tell us why, Steve. First of oh, all, oh Diana Ross, I'm saying. <laughs> Who are we talking about? Well, she, <laughs> she hit on Triv. Do you know that? No, I did not. Years ago, she hit on Triv. He was in the front row. Wow. Yeah, that was before he put on those pounds, but, yeah, she hit on Triv. Even before the pounds, I don't know if Triv's quite the guy that most women would want to hit on. Well, he's, I, I, I would equate him to being a chubby Mel Gibson. Really? Yeah, yeah Mel Gibson. If lethal weapon one. around in Lake Erie, that's what he looks like. <laughs> wow. Steve, now, welcome. Uh, and I'm couched on both sides yeah. with incredible wit. I hope yeah. I can keep Oh, I don't know. No, the, the bar's very, well, at least on this side, yeah. it's very low. Jeremy, yes, very witty. Jeremy, uh, Jerry, Jeremy Demry, excuse me, Jeremy, is our producer and director. So he's going to put everything up on the internet. Uh, Joe is the man behind. He's Joe's putting bills. up tents with Paula. Well, don't he's, take that the wrong way. He's but. our tycoon. That's what he is. He's our tycoon. Steve, aren't you happy all that you came funding. made the trip all the way from New York? This podcast is brought to you by Gunzelman's Tavern here in beautiful Fairview, Ohio. Go to gunzelmans.com for more information. 21490 Lorraine Road in Fairview Park, Ohio. It is one of the uh, the mecca of happiness. Yes, we, it is. We take in dreams and we give out happiness. That's what and we I do drink here. gravy shots. I know. I've seen this before. You guys. I Steve. did a double of beef gravy once. Oh, my goodness. If I'm ever condemned to death at Lucasville, I want that to be part of my final meal or special <laughs> meal. Steve, people around the bar, this is a couple of years ago, were watching this. Dan Coglin was going, hey, the face, he, people go, oh my God, Carmen, what is he doing? <laughs> it's Carmen, it's Nucci's brunch, brunch of pick, the week. Yeah, brunch, brunch pick, pick of, the week. of the week. Yes. So we would hold this sign up inside. New, they call him Nucci. It means little in Italian. Which is the antithesis. Well, it depends on what you're talking about. I'm swinging a tater tot. Easy trigger. And my leg, you're pulling on Wilbur. <laughs> Wilbur. All right, guys. Um, <laughs> all right, this let's is gone totally off the rails. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the your crazy book here. First of all, Steve, tell us about all the books you've written, and then we'll go right into Diana. <laughs> well, it's a, it, that's quite a segue coming back. Then. Well, because it's you know we're going to segue right into Elvis, which has its own uh, you oh, know boy. myriad of how things. How much time is? How long is this? Uh, about an hour. My okay. dad cooked for Elvis in Germany. Yeah. You could say anything you want here as long as it isn't a curse word. Okay. All right. Um, all right. About in 2010, I started to realize that there were oddities in the death of Elvis Presley, which brought about the investigation into it and uh, started my first book, Who Murdered Elvis? And I. Started, I was just going to write one book, and then it turned out to be a whole series of books. So I'm writing the Who Murdered Book series, and you can check out the series at whomurderedbooks.com. So volume one was Who Murdered Elvis. Volume two was Who Murdered FDR. Volume three was a continuation of Who Murdered Elvis. It was a fifth anniversary edition. And uh, I just published uh, a couple of months back Who Murdered Princess Diana, because there's, there's new information in all of these books that makes you take a look at the deaths a little bit a little bit different. So let me ask you about Elvis, especially about Elvis. What made Elvis the icon? Of course the music and you know the, the, the onstage presence, but beyond that, why do we love Elvis so many years later? Elvis, is, Elvis was baked in the cake of Americana. You know, he came in on the scene with television. You know, prior to Elvis Presley, kids didn't have their own music. 
He right. came on the scene with portable record players. You know, so he is such a part of Americana because he came of age at the same time all those other technologies came of age. Right. That, you know, he's just, you know. Now, when you say uh, kids didn't have their own music, do you say that because the music of that time was really kind of like filtered through... Uh, the lens of a 45-year-old plus Easy. person. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, it was big band era. I mean, okay. well, you transitioned from basically the Dorsey's. And then, and then when Elvis came along, he was kind of a part of the ilk of the youth. You know what I mean? Because he was also a young person as well. Well, prior to that, I mean, radios were a piece of furniture in the living room, and mm. everyone gathered around that, and you listened to basically whatever your parents were listening to. The Lone Ranger, you know, things right. like that. Well, radio serials started back in the late 20s all the way to the mid-50s, right. and there was, after the big band era, there were singers like Frankie Lane, Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, you know, safe. But those guys were crooners. Elvis was. No, he was, he was a singer. He was a rock and roll singer. So the establishment felt that, you know, there was R&B well before Elvis. I don't know if you know that. Oh, yeah. yeah you sure. know, like Ike Turner. Ike Turner had the first rock and roll song in 1951 called Rocket 88. He was with Jackie Brenston's band. And that was like the first rock and roll song bringing on people like Big Joe Turner and B.B. Uh, King and all these great singers that nobody would play on white radio stations. Yep. Elvis was enough. He was white. He was safe. And he was taking their music and making it acceptable. Yeah. He actually was influenced by gospel, which was his music of choice. And he, he mixed that with some country and rhythm and blues and, and started his own thing. So they were looking for the emergence of a bunch of different styles. And here was this kid who stumbled into Sun Records in Memphis and cranked out an album. And just and, enough of uh, like cultural appropriation to be successful. And having Carl Perkins along for the ride. Well, yeah, that's true. Can't yeah. go wrong there. Right, right. I mean, yeah, Sam Sam Phillips is the one that really, you know, the yeah. engineer. Well, yeah. All that. Yeah. Right. And Elvis only won three Grammy Awards, and all of them for gospel albums. Yeah, there you go. You know, Steve, you talk about, uh, you know, the infancy of television, and um, the one thing about Elvis, and, you know, we were stuck in the Ozzy and Harriet days back then, you know, people didn't see entertainers swinging their hips and their backsides on television, and, you know, it got to a point where these networks would only shoot him from the waist up. He was the original shock music. You know, he took it from how much is that doggy in the window to grinding something out on stage and pivoting and wiggling. And, you know, America was like, oh, my God, don't look at this. this yes, they weren't ready for it. You know, they just couldn't handle it. And then someone had to pierce the veil. That had to be Elvis. And he paved the way for the Beatles and the Stones. And, I mean, without Elvis. Well, know, think about that. Sun Records, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, Carl Perkins. I mean... Unbelievable. Johnny Cash. Yes. Johnny Cash, of all people. Yeah. The greatest of all time, in my opinion. Johnny was incredible. He really was. He really no, I mean, that, that that group, that genre, I mean, you know, you look at guys like Jimmy Page and who they idolized. You know, I mean, Jimmy Page, you know, his inspiration was uh, Chuck Berry. Right. You know, um, Angus Young, Chuck Berry. So many of these guys, they were influenced by those 1950s guitarists or singers right here in America. Yeah. Chuck Berry, of course, was from uh, Chess Records. His first hit was Maybelline in 1955. Yeah. So Chess was up in St. Louis. Anyway, we'll get to the record labels much later. Steve, I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. It's a fascinating conversation. But everyone has to be influenced from someone, you know. And uh, everybody takes something from someone else. 
and uh, I think Elvis did the same thing. Um, you know, in the same way Muhammad Ali did the same thing. He merged two different boxing styles into his own style. Elvis did the same thing, only he mixed three styles. And, and nobody ever heard anything like it. So, You know, there's that debate, Steve, as to who is possibly the greatest entertainer of all time. Elvis, to me, he's a legend. He died when I was eight years old. Okay, I really didn't, you know, um, I, I remember vividly that day in August in 1977, I came upstairs. My mom was doing dishes, and she was in tears. And I asked her why, and she said, Elvis passed away. August 16th, right? Yeah. And it just, my heart dropped. I mean, he was legend in my house, you know. Um, but uh, he was, he was to me, some people may say Michael Jackson, but I, to me, Elvis was the greatest showman ever. I now people could debate me all day long, and there are a lot of people out there that say Michael, you know, was. Well, um, you but forgot somebody. Who? Sammy. Sammy. Davis Jr. Well, he was. But, I mean, he could dance. He could sing. He yeah, oh, I'll go with George Carlin. How about that? <laughs> Can we just end that debate and go? All right, with Carlin? All right let's go to Dick Dale, my hero. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Go on. But I mean, you know, he was Elvis was just captivating to me, and unfortunately, you know, I didn't really get, I didn't see the the body of his work live because I was just so young. So. Yeah, and we're we're coming up, you know, we're forty five years past now. Coming up on forty five. Seventy yeah. Coming up on forty five years past, and here we are still talking about the guy. Yeah. <laughs> well it, let's amazing. let's talk about some of the things like the last couple of years of his life. I mean, things the perception of Elvis, he was fat, he was a drug addict, he was he just wasn't himself. Let me let me get, answer your question as to why we're still fascinated with him today. I I addressed why he's so baked into the cake, but Elvis was surrounded by a group of guys called the Memphis Mafia, who were not mafia at all. They were, it was just a, somebody in the press gave him that moniker because they showed it up in tailored suits and sunglasses, and they thought they were the mafia. They weren't. But nothing got out to the people from Elvis, and nothing got in to Elvis. It all was filtered through them. So we never got a chance to really know what the guy was like. So even now, most of the Memphis Mafia guys that I knew were long gone. Um, you know, we still clamor for all of that information that was forbidden from us. So he was the forbidden fruit. Also, Colonel Parker, the genius that was Colonel Parker, he held him back. You weren't going to get him on The Tonight Show. Right. You know, you had to pay for Elvis. He was a premium. So even if you were a, a great big huge star like Dean Martin or something like that, I mean, you would be afforded an interview. Elvis was, was held back. So we have this, this limitless you know, lust for information about this guy because he was so held back all, and that's what's carrying it forward now. You know, you know we had Priscilla on uh, about three or four years ago, and she said that his existence was awful and the simple fact that if he wanted to go to an amusement park, it had to be shut down. Mm -hmm. He would have to go to the dentist at like, you know, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, you know, um, because of who he was. He he was a prisoner within his own four walls. How would you like to live like that? Victim of his fame, absolutely. And he was, you know, Sonny West, who is someone that I knew as part of the Memphis Mafia, uh, who's long gone now, he said it better than anybody I've ever heard say it. Elvis was more famous than anyone who's ever been famous. You go halfway around the world and there's guys and, guys and gals in grass huts without running water, they have a little picture of Elvis. And they managed to do that in a time where there was no social media. The world media was tiny. You know, there was no Facebook. There was, they didn't even have fax machines. You know, imagine the spectacle, the spectacle 
yeah. in the accomplishment that this was in this time period, you know. Um, and then dying in 77, back to your question. Um, and the rumors came out that, uh, you know, Elvis was hopped up on drugs and he was this and he was that. Oh. And um, <laughs> Elvis had a birth defect. He had a twisted colon. Yes, that's a real helicopter going over, folks. We're it's outside. a Black Hawk, right? No, it's not, that's not a Black Hawk. No? No. It's not a Black Hawk. I hope it's one of ours anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the Gunzo Copter going to get people to bring him back for the party. There you go. All your friends are doing it. Stop by. <laughs> <laughs> so Elvis had a twisted colon, and he had a problem with this his entire life. He was born this way. All right. So he would have a tremendous problem with bowel movements. Weeks at a time. I know it's terrible to talk about. It really is. It was discovered at the autopsy. His doctors all knew it. And when you prescribe somebody downers, yeah, that just makes the problem Lugs worse. up the drain. So you get towards the end of Elvis's life. He's really got a problem with this. He's taking more medicine. He's taking more downers. So he's looking pudgy and pasty. He's not looking right. And he was scheduled for surgery to correct all that. And, of course, he died. When he died... They did the autopsy, and they do this disgusting thing called running the gut. They take your intestines out, and they stretch them out, and they take a flat-billed pair of surgical scissors, and they cut up your gut, and you open your intestines to see what's in there. And Elvis had, like, <laughs> it, his intestines were jam-packed. His colon was packed with clay-like fecal matter to the point where they couldn't even cut through it. Wow. This is what this guy was going through. So these stories came out that, you know, he'd eat four dozen donuts at a time. And, of course, that, that wasn't the case either. And then it was, the story kept changing. It was a heart attack, you know, and he died from an irregular heartbeat. Right. Well, how do you do that when you don't, when the heart's not beating? Right. You know, if you have AFib or, or something like that, you have to have a beating heart to diagnose that. Makes right. sense? You're not going to diagnose that on a coroner's table. Can't. So that was just a fancy term, hoping that people would go away and not ask any questions. Didn't right. work. So then it comes back a couple years later that um, Geraldo Rivera in 1979 and 2020 um, did this. 2020 was going off the air. They couldn't get anyone to watch it. So they had to start attaching themselves to investigating Elvis's death. They saved the network show. So he did this... Um, this uh, pseudo-investigation claiming that, you know, Elvis was taking all of these drugs and there were thousands of drugs that were prescribed to him and this and that and the other thing. Well, yeah, but prescribed to and taking are quite two different things. 1976, Elvis Presley almost went bankrupt. He was the biggest taxpayer in the state of Tennessee. So his father took over his finances to save him and make him solvent. So what he, what he did was his doctor was, in his, was an employee of his who traveled with him. And um, he just, it's funny because before he died, he just passed two physicals head to toe for insurance purposes and passed them both. So here we have all these drugs being prescribed. Elvis didn't want to get chewed out by his father for buying all these drugs for his, his Memphis Mafia. So they just had them all prescribed under Elvis's name so we didn't have to hear about it. So you have a candy bowl in the middle of the room, and if the Memphis Mafia went by, they take a handful and one, two, and if there was a little left, Elvis might pop one or two. But you know the the fantasy that Elvis was taking all of these pills 
There was enough pills. It would have killed a herd of cattle. It would have been impossible for anyone to take all of those pills, you know, one time or any time, you know. So there are different toxicology levels. There were three toxicology reports done on Elvis Presley, one done by the University of Tennessee, which came back at uh, very low levels of drugs. There are four different types of drugs. There's um, trace. Um, there's uh, pharmaceutical, which is what a doctor would prescribe. Um, there's toxic, which would make you sick. And then there's lethal, which will kill you. In the case of Elvis Presley, the first two came back it just below the pharmaceutical level. Well, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So they're trying to find this nail that they can pound in saying, aha, he died of drugs. And it, two and two can only equal four. It can't equal 165 and a half, okay? So they take it to the third one, that um, toxicology report, which comes back coding at 11 times the lethal level, I think. But there's a problem with that. Elvis Presley was allergic to codeine. This is where my book comes in. In 1968, Elvis Presley almost died of anaphylaxic shock because his throat started to swell closed because he had dental work and they gave him codeine. So I interviewed Dan Warlick who dissected Elvis Presley's body and took out his, the first thing he did was, was cut into his throat and check his larynx. And he said there was no sign of anaphylaxic shock in his body. So if it's, <laughs> if codeine is not in the body, how can it end up at 11 times the lethal level in one and only one of the three toxicology reports? If it's not in the body, it can't be in the toxicology report. And if you go that far, you've got to cover up. So they did this whole thing to spin this away from this cold case murder, and the murderer is still out there. Why do you think they don't let anybody upstairs at Graceland? How many people do you want wow. walking through a crime scene? Yeah. Wow. What do you think is up so there? So yeah, you, you truly believe someone whacked them? Well, I do. His father did. Um, his Didn't father, he die in Vegas, though? No, he died, he died in upstairs at, at Graceland. His father, um, right after his murder, hired, <laughs> murder, hired two private investigators to, to solve it. He died in 1979 after Elvis did. Um, and my book picks up where Vernon's probe left off. Um, Ginger Alden was his girlfriend who was, at the time, who was quoting his saying, I couldn't rule out foul play. Um, well, how could anybody get close to him to pull that off with the mafia, the Memphis mafia? This was timed perfectly. In the circus, you have what they call 24-hour people, and they go on site, and they set things up 24 hours ahead of time. Elvis was hours away from flying out of town to go to Portland, Maine to start the, the, the new leg of his tour. The majority of the people were gone. There was only one or two people who were, who were in, in Graceland at the time. And well, then they, that, had, they had help. Uh, well, those one or two people would be prime suspects then, obviously. Yeah. Who and, were they? And this is, well, I can't get into that on the air, but... In all of my books, I run everything through motive, means, and opportunity. And you, you'll find out. You read it. I'll give you a book. Did I give you one? No. Uh, no. All right. Well, no. I'm going to give you and Jeremy. Everybody gets books. Everybody. Books, books, everybody gets books. So um, I run it right through the criminal process of motive, means, and opportunity. I screen all the suspects out. And in the end, I will tell you who murdered him, why they murdered him, how they murdered him, everything. 
And it's, it's an interesting, they're interesting books. I mean, this, these are not fairy tales. And the name of the book? Um, Who Murdered Elvis? I did the same thing for FDR. Um, FDR, uh, <laughs> Ray's holding up signs. <laughs> Ambient noise is good, Ray. It's okay. It's all, it's all good. So in the case of FDR, I thought it was a little convenient that FDR, Mussolini, and Hitler all died within 18 days of each other at the end of the war. I thought that was a little convenient. I thought it was also convenient that FDR died strangely as Allied troops were storming Hitler's bunker. And every now and then you get lucky. I got lucky with this one. Um, one of his cousins, Daisy Suckley, published her diary called Closest Companion. And in the diary, called The Presidential Diary, she describes FDR being on the couch, uh, sick, with his body is not responding to the medications they're giving him. And his blood pressure would go crazy. 319 over 192, and it would come back and it would swing the other way. And she finally cornered the doctor and said, what is going on? And the doctor told her, published in her diary. It's some sort of poisoning, and we can't ascribe anything to it. So they're admitting right there the guy's being poisoned. No wonder his body's not, not responding to, to the prescriptions that are, that are being given. So FDR died in front of two Russian spies. <laughs> and no one talks about this. And that's the question, why? Because... When you control the media, you control what everybody thinks. It's happening today. Yes, Tendo bingo. Works, Tendo works pretty well. Oh, Carmen's on uh, works at WTAM, and he knows better than anybody. Yeah, I. Um, you just look at the narratives being painted by whether it's a CNN or Fox or MSNBC. You know, there's a certain agenda with uh, every network. Yep. Fauci. All of, they're well, all, all owned by the same people, I think. Yeah. Fauci. Yeah, he's on the CNN payroll. Sure. But um, but um, bump bump. <laughs> I, have a, I have a friend who's a doctor and, and very liberal, and even she says that Fauci is um, not somebody that she respects. And she's a medical professional, and she's liberal. The thing about Fauci is he's told us the truth four different ways. That's what yes. I mean. <laughs> you know, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, wear two masks. We're three, hell. You know? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. And I got so tired of listening to this grovelly voice Geppetto up on this stage, always talking and never saying anything. You know, so right. anyway, sorry. he has not practiced medicine since 1984. I he, did not know that. Yeah, he's been the head of the uh, National Institutes of Health since then. Um, now, I will give him credit. He and Dr. Burks, Debbie Burks, um, in the infancy of the AIDS uh, oh, epidemic, right. you know, they were on the front lines. You know, and I mean, unfortunately, we're still trying to come up with a vaccine for that virus. But you know, he did. You know, he was very beneficial to our country back in the late 70s and early 80s. Didn't Magic Johnson make it through that? That's a whole nother thing. That is a whole nother thing. Not that I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I mean, you know, they say money can buy you anything. But, you know, there were a lot of other people that had a lot of money that did not survive, you know, the AIDS virus or HIV. And Magic, I don't know. I think, I, I hate to say this, I'm going to admit this, I'm, I'll never forget it, November 7th, 1991, Magic yeah, came out right, with that announcement. Right, right. I was stunned, absolutely shocked. Um, I don't think Magic ever had it, you know, really? call me crazy. Well, he is Magic. <laughs> well, yes. Well, well yeah, I mean, if he didn't have it, then, then why say it, and then he ruined his career? He could have played another five, six years. 
uh, I believe that uh, you know some people very very high up said, look. This is spiraling out of control. We need to attach a very, very prominent face to this to bring even more awareness to it. And he may have gotten a check for three, four billion dollars, you know, and said, "Hey, I have it." I mean, you know, you look at so many of these people that have passed away—people that had money and magic survived. Call me crazy, you know. I don't want to sound like George Norrie, which you can hear uh, overnights on WTAM eleven hundred. I love George. Norrie. I love George. I listen to George Norrie every night. And I, I just love the fact that most conspiracy theorists are like, look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, but I have some conspiracy theories. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, well, that's what you are. <laughs> you know, I, it, but who knows? I could be 100% incorrect here. And bless but, your heart for being honest with us about that. You know, um, I believe in six conspiracies. All right. The rest of them, I don't believe in. Did Lee Harvey Oswald act alone? <laughs> That is the next book. You know I don't that. think he acted. No, I don't. Yeah, yeah. He was an actor. What was he in? Who Moodage. <laughs> no, Oswald was a cartoon back in the uh, late 1990s. Do you oh, remember there we Oswald? Go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Right in your wheelhouse. <laughs> My kids used to watch oh, it. No, man. he's in a play called On the Grassy Knoll. You just, <laughs> oh, Herman, you just crippled me, man. Oh, dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> you could laugh into the microphone. I know. I'm trying not to do that. But that is the next book, huh? <laughs> yeah, the next one after uh, after Diana is who murdered JFK. And I have kind of a unique insight into this. I have a cousin. Carlos Marcello. No. No? I have a cousin named... John Denver. John Denver. <laughs> no, his name was James Snyder, and he was he worked for many presidents as part of their presidential security detail. So he wasn't in Dallas when this happened, but what he did was he received the limousine back in Washington and held it until the FBI took it over. And then it was completely scrubbed, scrubbed correct? Um, there were more bullet holes than reported. So there's there's a lot so I'll be telling things from his story. He passed away last year. He was afraid to get into it. I have all of his notes. I'm going to tell his story from his perspective and what he saw. And there were bullet holes in the windshield. So there was a front shooter. The first gun they found was a Mauser. And no one talks about that. They talk about the man liquor Carcano that Oswell allegedly shot. If he shot or not, I don't know. And I don't care. It's, it's immaterial to me who shot him. The fact of the matter is the man was shot. You know, Let's deal with the macro fact. So um, the first gun found is a Mauser. And I've seen pictures of the Mauser being logged. They're out there. But nobody talks about the Mauser because if you have two guns, you have two shooters. If you have two shooters, you have... A conspiracy. You just yell it right out when you know. There yeah. you go. <laughs> I did it. I win. <laughs> you get a year's supply of rice the no. San Francisco treat. And Tell don't forget, you. Carmen, he gets a set of steak knives. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Gunzelman's Tavern. For more information, go to gunzelmans.com. Or if you'd like to place an ad on this podcast, go to gunzelmans.com and enter the contact us section. And please enter your information there. All right, back to the show. What do you want, Johnny? You know, we've, the four of us have never done this before, and you'd think that we'd be, we have done this for years. Oh, really? Together. You're giving us far too much credit. Man, I'm telling My you. My children could do a better job than what we're doing. We're getting, now, we get together just like the Capulets and the Montagues. Now, getting back to the... <laughs> that's funny. Wow. Uh, getting back to the... Book. You don't have to cover the mic. 
you're good. You can laugh right into it. I'm trying or at not least, to. Yeah, pull away a little bit. I'm yeah. laughing, but I don't want it with, you know, my laugh booms. I don't want to take away from what they're saying. So, so we have very back, little to offer, Steve. Get back to the book. <laughs> what were some of the uh, sources that came forward for your book that you're a little, like, shocked by that actually had some valuable information for you? Which book? That, uh, Elvis book. Susanna Lee, I think, was, oh, boy, there, there was a lot of them. Um, Susanna Lee, I think, is the one for me that really knocked me back four or five feet. She was out there saying that Elvis Presley was murdered in 1978, and she was living in Memphis, and she was really good friends with Elvis. And um, she was his co-star in Paradise Hawaiian style. And... George Klein was a DJ, one of Elvis's boyhood friends in, uh, in Memphis. And they were talking on the air, and they were talking about Elvis Presley's murder. And what happened to her was incredible. They, they clipped her brake lines, they burned her house down, everything to harass this woman into shutting her mouth, and she wouldn't shut her mouth about it. So she was in the process, she's gone now, she died in 2016. She was in the process of writing a book um, and I was talking to her about it. I was going to help her publish it, uh, about Elvis Presley's murder and who was behind it. And um, so there's a lot of people who, who came forward. Um, and this Elvis is a live thing. And I mean, this is, you know, Elvis is... Elvis has become our new Bigfoot. He know? lives in the French Riviera with Jim Morrison, Steve. Yeah, we, we see Elvis walking, and it's, he's become our new Bigfoot. There's I thought he was caged up in Jerry Lee Lewis's basement. <laughs> oh, you want to hear a story about Jerry Lee? I interviewed oh, Jerry Lee once. He was a strange bird. And, yeah, oh, and I yeah. talked to Jerry. It's about five years ago. I, I said, Jerry, um, you were working in Sun Studios with uh, Roy Orbison, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, and Elvis. What did you learn by working with the king? He goes, he pauses, he goes, I didn't learn, and learn nothing from the king. He learned all everything from me. <laughs> sure. And he Sounds was damn, like Jerry Lee Lewis And he was me. darn serious he about it. He was a confident yeah. cat, man. Didn't he pull a gun on um, Johnny Cash yeah. at one point? No, like Elvis. A revolver? Oh, he pulled a gun on Elvis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Johnny, or uh, Jerry Lee was unbelievable. 14-year-old cousin. That was yeah. down for uh, It's true. Yeah. I know. Been, it's disgusting. Second cousin, though. <laughs> what was a 14-year-old, Ray? I don't like it. I don't like it. Elvis did a 14-year-old as well. Is that right, Steve? Man, why do you have to give me this question? I don't want to talk bad about it. What? We talked about it. This is a podcast. We're going to be honest. We're going to lay our cards on the table. Anyway, back to this Elvis is a live thing, you know. <laughs> that is good. I'm going to use that tomorrow night. Give him proper attribution, please, if you're going to use no, someone's material. I, I used it. I'm sorry. There you go. Giddy up. Okay. <laughs> Elvis had, and I learned this from Susanna Lee, Elvis was cranking out a movie a month, and the scripts were, they were all rushed. It was just to keep the cash cow going that made Elvis groan, because Colonel Parker was probably one of the most degenerate gamblers in history. Um, when Worse he, than John Daly? When he died, when, when Elvis died, Colonel Parker owed $32 million. Wow. Casinos. In, in 1977, in 32 70, million? In 77 money. Wow. And that is a degeneracy. This like is one of the reasons why he was giving Elvis away for free to the casinos so they could, you know, but that's all covered in the book. But Susanna Lee told me in order to do these movies in rapid fire one after the next, Elvis would be in the studio laying down the soundtracks, and her, her scenes were with 
body doubles who's, who are surgically altered to look like Elvis. In fact, if you look at a couple of pictures um, from Paradise Hawaiian style, we looked at them yesterday, right? Yeah. You can tell, and I'll show them to you. Sorry, this is not a video thing, so I can't show everybody. These people are not Elvis. They've been surgically altered to resemble Elvis. Same height, same everything. And there's three of these, no, two of these guys. And um, they were in almost every movie, you know, like Fun in Acapulco. You think, really think Elvis was jumping off the cliffs in Acapulco? No. Yeah, I don't think so. So it was a hell of a dive, by the way. But um, the, this is what these people are seeing. They're, they're seeing these doubles or people who have been altered, and they're thinking they're Elvis. Trust me, if Elvis is alive, he's walking around without most of his vital organs yeah. because Dr. Harold Sexton still has them in dry ice. So you're going to love this book, and so will you. And you're both getting autographed copies. Thank you. You're listening to the Gunzelcast. I'm Ray Carr, Jeremy Demry, our special guest, Steve Eubaney, and, of course, my sidekick and uh, inspiration, Carmen Angelo. Use that uh, term inspirate or word inspiration lightly. Carmen, I listen to you yeah, every day, and I, I get inspired. It's to be inspired to what? on what not to do. take a dump? Yes. <laughs> yes. No, to, to be the best I can be. To, you know, the sound of my voice keeps you regular. You don't have to go to the drugstore. You've heard of the... He's uh, trying to say you're the shit. That's <laughs> Are we allowed oh, to cuss? Man, I just yeah, keep it in there. No, Who no. cares? Carmen, you're li like the footprints in the sand. Oh, yeah? yeah? I'm like a John Cafferty song? No, it's the poem, the religious poem. <laughs> I've done a lot of good in my life, but I also did a lot of bad before I got sick. Man, I wish I had the last five minutes of my life back. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks, Steve. <laughs> Steve, as, as then we, you're cutting into your, some of your own time. We're going down the rabbit hole a little too quickly here. Let's let's make our way up to um, oh, man, um, this is 1997, <laughs> and let's talk about Diana, because that's really the the latest book, and I know that is a topic that really hits home as Elvis and FDR do, but. Nothing hits home like Diana. Diana was an interesting lady. Um, she was a supermodel combined with Mother Teresa. Oh, wow. That's a great correlation. And, you know, the world just loved her. She captivated the whole world. And, you know, she uh, went from being a very scorned divorcee to rising from this timid, shy, little pudgy-faced girl to, you know, being a, a beautiful girl who... Uh, who en enveloped herself in causes for mankind. And ultimately, what she was looking for in her life was for someone to love her as much as she loved mankind, and I don't think she ever found it. So um, It seemed like everybody loved her, though. I mean, the oh, world loved her. It was, yeah. I'll, I'll, <laughs> man, it's, uh, it was amazing. You have these moments in time that are, that are etched. I remember where I was exactly when Elvis died. I remember where I was exactly when 9/11 happened. I remember where exactly where I was when Princess Diana died. You know, and uh, if you're alive and you live through those things, you know, those are things and images you'll never forget. Right. You know, and I knew immediately. I was I wasn't even thinking about writing a book back then. I knew immediately something was suspicious. Wasn't it on a Saturday night? It was a Friday night. Was it a Friday night? I had just gotten done coaching a football game at Fairview. I coached at Fairview High School. Yeah. And I remember coming home, and uh, I watched something, and they had a break in maybe about, could it have been around midnight? Yeah. One o'clock our time? Very early in the morning. And I was up until about six in the morning just watching the coverage. I remember yeah, it I think everybody was just glued. I was in the I was living in Vegas and I was in the, in the pool with my girlfriend and my neighbor runs out and it was like, man, you know what I mean, the world just we gasped. 
and it seemed like it, it lasted for days. This, this, you know, this, um, this lull feeling. You know. Yeah, you know what I'll never forget is her funeral. If you recall, Steve, um, number one, was it true that her casket was lined with lead? So, you know, that's one I've never heard. Yeah, I, I, I was told, or I heard that her casket was lined with lead, so nobody could try and get pictures of her body through, you know, special technology, radiation. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's I, one I never. I, it might be totally off base, but I heard her casket was lined with lead, and if you recall. The pallbearers, they, they were part of the, um, I, I believe, British military. Mm -hmm. They had that her casket on their shoulders. Do you recall that? I do. And they were struggling to carry that, you know, as far as they did and ultimately into the church. I know that Elvis was buried in a special casket. Um, not only special in design, but it was also designed so it could easily be exhumed and there were things that were put in there. Mm -hmm. So, which he was exhumed because they had to move him from his original resting place because people tried to steal the body. And that's... And so they, that, that's sick. They, yeah, you'd have to be one sick cat to do that, man. I mean, that's... <laughs> Uh, that's unbelievable. Steal Elvis's body for ransom, what people won't do for money. But as far as Diana's concerned, um, it's it's an interesting book. There's a lot in this book that has... I, I had to read 17 other books on her to screen out what I was going to add and what I was going to subtract. And I added my own stuff. Um, a lot of things that stick out... Um, one of the overriding questions I have is, who has ever been threatened for giving testimony of a car accident? There's been like 13 people who have been threatened because they went to the French police and gave their accounting of what they saw. And if it's just a car accident, why bother? Makes no sense to me. So here she is. Here she is. Um, there's this, this horrible accident happens. Which, if you look at the Mercedes, I watched the crash test ratings of the Mercedes, and it got a high crash test rating. It speeds higher than what they hit the 13th pillar at. So you have to ask your question, okay? If it's designed to withstand an impact higher than the, the miles per hour that they hit, why did, why did all these people die in the car? So... Mercedes-Benz had the same question. They said, all right, there's got to be something wrong because we know what... Mercedes-Benz is probably one of the finest automakers in the world. So they're getting all of this bad press because of the car and it killed Diana and this and that. So they stepped forward and said, look, give us the car. We'll go from bumper to bumper. We'll make sure that there's no manufacturer's defect in this thing, nothing. They were, re they were refused to look at the car by the French government and by the British government. I can kind of see that just because there's a conflict of interest to saying, hey, there was no malfunction with the car because they were the manufacturer of the car themselves. So I kind of understand where the French government was coming from on that one. The only people who ever examined the car were people who were in the employ of the pageant report who were really paid to find nothing. Um, that car had been months before Months before, that car had been stolen and stripped and put back together and put back together incorrectly. It was missing fuses. Uh, some of the seat belts didn't work. Uh, this, was, this was a car that was not their normal car uh, for the Elfied family. 
and it's a car who just should not have been used. And of course, no one knew that until this this crash happens. So the crash happens, and ambulances come, um, and they're paying more attention to the dead people than they are the, the just the most famous woman in the world, you know. And no one's paying attention to her. It took them almost two hours to get her. Full, well, they don't have miles over there; it's kilometers, but the equivalent of four miles to a hospital it took them two hours. Yeah, that I did not know. Yeah, that's bizarre. So here they are. They've got her on the gurney. They've got her. She's awake. She's talking. She's obviously grimacing in pain. So they get the gurney into the ambulance, and they're having a debate as to where to take her. How about the nearest hospital? Well, you would think, right? So you know, it, it bend your mind in, a, in an era where people are running the two-minute mile. It took them. <laughs> It took them for uh, two hours to get her four miles away. Like I told Ray last night in the, in the book signing, she would have been better off ordering a Domino's pizza and riding back with a the driver. They get there in 30 minutes, I think. Um, and it, I ran this by Dr. Cyril Wecht. Ah. Buddy of mine. Um, Allegheny County? Yep. Doc's the best. Oh, my God. What a great guy. Uh, I see him once a year at the JFK conference in Dallas. Okay. And he said... Well, his comments from my book, but the, the thumbnail of what he said is if they would have gotten to her sooner, she'd lived. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, why in the hell did they wait so long? And there were conspiracy theories that she was pregnant and they gave her an abortion and the thing on the way there and blah, 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 blah. I don't know about any of that. I, mean, I can't speak to that. I, I, I try and base everything in fact. Everything I write is backed up with a factoid. I think Elvis had like 45 factual sources. I think Diane is the same. Um, and I, I really try and trace things back to fact. If I can't trace them back to fact, then for me they're gossip and I don't deal in gossip. You know, let the National Enquirer deal in gossip. I deal in facts. So that's a big question mark. So she gets to the hospital. <laughs> she's basically bleeding out and she's died. she dies almost on impact at the hospital. She's almost DOA, not quite. So then what happens? You would think, with the most famous woman in the world, who is, was British royalty by birth, and who was French royalty by lineage, and Prince Charles was her cousin, they, married, they were both cousins, so she married her cousin, you would think with all of this notoriety and all of this royalty going on, that there would be some variety of a crime scene investigation, even if you're just going through the motions. But you know what? They didn't. As soon as she was pronounced dead, they called in special equipment to scrub the tunnel clean, and they opened the tunnel back up. No investigation, no nothing. Eerily similar to the JFK assassination, when they drive to Parkland, they take Kennedy into the hospital, and you have Secret Service with buckets and sponges washing out the blood splatter from the crime scene in, in the thing. In the in the back of the limo. Yeah, that's when I had asked earlier. The the limo had been scrubbed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell is going on? I mean, I mean this- in nineteen what was it? Nineteen sixty three. Sixty three. November twenty second. Uh, I could kind of see there being kind of uh, how do you put this? Uh, uneducated things to do as far as law enforcement's concerned with crime scenes because they didn't just didn't have the DNA. 
splatter analysis. You know, they, they wanted to get rid of this uh, horrific scene as quickly as possible. Now, in 1997, that technology was available. Yeah. We had the know-how to investigate a crime scene. The fact that they didn't do that in 1997 does raise a lot of red flags. I'll give you that much. I mean, this is why crime scene tape is, is invented. You get one shot at solving a crime. That's it. This is why they tape it off with the crime scene tape and don't touch anything until the investigators get there because it's like butterfly wings. Once touched, you're done. That's mm -hmm. it. So the same thing happened to Elvis Presley. The EMTs come. They take the body. The investigators are notified that there's a death. Dan Warlick, who I, we lost here a couple years ago, who I knew very well, interviewed him a couple times. He comes back with the district attorney to go through all of the rooms, everything sanitized. The bed is made. There's not, there's not even an aspirin in that in that place. Who is, what the, it, do you notice a theme here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the Diana book, I call these things threads of insanity. Marilyn Monroe. Here's another one. Huh? The investigators get there. What's the housekeeper doing? The laundry from the you know. And that was a stage death scene because, you know, uh, liver mortis, which is the purplish hue when your body stops pumping, where right. your blood settles, was on the opposite side of her face. Hmm. So yeah. there are definitely threads. Uh, Steve, once again, let's tell everybody where to get the books, what they are, so we can get you uh, some big sales here. All right. I like that. Big sales. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the name of the website is whomurderedbooks.com, whomurderedbooks.com, and you will find there Who Murdered Elvis, Who Murdered FDR, Who Murdered Elvis Part 2, and my latest one is Who Murdered Princess Diana. And in the future, we're looking at JFK and Tesla, right? Coming up probably in a year will be Who Murdered JFK. I do all of my own work. I do all of my own writing. And uh, it's a lot. I think there's 3,900 hours of, yeah. uh, of writing and research. That's what I said in your book, yeah. So it's exhaustive. So it'll be a year, and then it'll be who murdered JFK, and then after that is who murdered Nikola Tesla. Wow. And that's going to be a book and a half. Well, it was great having you here, but before, before we all leave, the Browns are going to kick off in about 45 minutes, if you're listening to this at a future time. It's uh, Sunday, about 12.15. They played the Chicago Bears at home. Real quick, Carmen, give me your prediction. Browns 24-21. Okay. He took my prediction. That's exactly what I was going to say. Jeremy, I know you don't like football, but... Uh, I think one team's going to end up winning. That's my prediction. You know what's going to happen? You just put them alike. They're going to tie because you said that. That's right. It'll be a 12-12 right. tie, all field goals, because I, you said that. Hell yeah. That What a, what a game. 24-17 <laughs> Bears. The Bears, son. Huh? Yeah, they're going to win. Great car. Get out of here. I, I, listen, I, I, I'm ambivalent. I think there's a 50%. I'm totally ambivalent. Or as Mike Tyson would say, as Mike Tyson would say, I'm ambiguous. All right, I Carmen, can hit people with either hand. What do, what do the Browns need to do today in order to put up a win and prove great, Ray wrong? Great defense. If they have stifling defense, that is the key. If they don't, they're going to lose. JOK, JOK better spy Justin Fields because Nat, Matt Nagy is going to have a package in there where um, Justin Fields will be able to throw the ball as well as run the ball on the zone read. Maybe guess right, bring Grant Delpit up into the box. You know, defending that zone read or uh, going against uh, that zone read defense, you want to have athletes. And Justin Fields, if you bring Grant Delpit up, 
He's got to read that D end, then that backer, and then he's got a safety to worry about. Get in his head, confuse him, and you got to beat on him. You got to oh, make him pay. And hopefully, Miles Garrett gets involved today, right? Uh, I would hope so. A hundred twenty-five million dollar contract. You know, I mean, we're getting three dollars to do this podcast, and we're performing a hell of a lot better than he has the first <laughs> couple weeks. Wow. Wow. Way to put our, our business out there. <laughs> All right, you can get a hold of me at raycaram.com. Sorry, Joe. So, and we want to thank Gunzelman. This is called the Gunzelcast, and we're emanating right from the beautiful uh, grounds of Gunzelman's. And in- incorrectly brought to you by Yingling's Traditional Lager, America's <laughs> oldest brew. Right? Yes. A we'll run with bit. it. A running bit. Yeah. Uh, big thanks to Gunzelman's Tavern. If you're interested in advertising on this podcast get a hold of us at gunsmans.com uh in in the information section uh fill out your information what you're interested in advertising take a look at us there and then uh also big thanks to gunsman's taverns for sponsoring the podcast and uh also tell your friends uh make sure to like like and subscribe the podcast uh, please leave us a five star or five star review uh, that definitely helps uh, engage the algorithm and help us promote the podcast even further. Tell your friends, tell your family uh, about our wonderful podcast here uh, at the Gunzel Cast. And Ray, do you have any closing remarks? No, we'll see you next week. I had a great time. Thank you, Steve Ubaney. Fascinating, Steve. Really, yep. truly, Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. Come down to Gunselman's. All your friends are doing it. Yeah, you Carmen, gotta, you got to come again. You have anything oh, yeah. to promote? Um, Monday through Friday, Mike Trevisano Show, 3 to 7 on WTAM 1100. Be sure to check out Gunzelman Tavern's Comedy Night, October 24th. Uh, I forget the lineup. I'll get that for you next week. Yeah, get it for us next week. We're doing Queen of Hearts here tomorrow night, which is a Monday, and that'll be at 8 o'clock. So you can watch it on Facebook Live. And Barry will be here. Barry will tell the joke, joke of the week. And he'll be wearing his Don Ho shirts. He will, and I'll be wearing the funny jacket. Imagine that. (laughs) And I will not be here. All right. All right. Thank you, folks. We'll see you next time. Yep. Bye-bye.